welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast in the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 8th of June 2020 and this is episode 164. On today's podcast, I talk to Pratap Chetri, first Gurkha officer to be given a King's Commission in the British Army. I spoke to Pratap over the interweb from his home in Mizoram province in northeast India. I started by asking Pratap about his interest in the Great War and then switched the microphone on. Now, you had me in an earlier episode and I, I talked a little about myself, but I think I'll just repeat that again. I'm a civil servant and have been working for the provincial government of Mizoram in the Union of India for the last 10 years, specializing in media matters and public communication. Ethnically, I am a Gurkha. My forefathers were the foot soldiers of various expeditions that colonized the northeastern part of India, which was known as the Hills of Assam, which is the area today presently sandwiched by Bangladesh and Myanmar and China, and is known in India as the Northeast India. I also have a family connection to the Great War. My maternal great-grandfather, Thane Gharti was his name. He was a rifleman in the erstwhile uh, Lushai Hills Military Police Battalion, which later became the first battalion of India's oldest paramilitary force, the Assam Rifles, whose origin dates back to, I think, 1835 or so. Now, during the war, men from his battalion and other police battalions were drafted on a monthly basis and then attached to various Gurkha regiments during the course of the war. Now, he was also similarly drafted and attached to a Gurkha Rifles battalion and saw action in France perhaps in 1916, I think. Now, now I, am, I am yet to certain where exactly he fought because the regimental papers, I mean, our, our family never preserved those papers and... Uh, and I think uh, the regiment also didn't have his papers, so his regimental papers are, are literally untraceable. So that's a, that's a sad part. Now, about 20 years back, I had seen the participation medals of the of, of the First World War of my great-grandfather, uh, which was in the position of his youngest son. Now, then I didn't pay it that much of, atten- of attention. I just knew that they were old medals. But in 2014, when the centennial, start, uh, the centennial celebrations of the First World War started, the medals suddenly struck my mind. And I went to, to my, great, my, my great uncle's house and asked for him to, and asked him if I could again have a look at the medal. And when he brought them out, I, I examined and, and I looked, I, I again looked at it. And I could see on the rim his name inscribed. I had, I had a good look at those two medals. So that's how um, I realized that, uh, yes, I do have a connection with the Great War. And since then, I had already had an interest in the Labour Corps and was also very interested in, in finding out the contributions of my Gurkha brethren, in, particularly, uh, in particular the First World War, the Second World War, and the yearning to know more about their pain and suffering because... They, they suffer tremendous losses in, in, term, in, in terms of men, in terms of, I mean, the world turned upside down for them, but because they were an unlettered lot, a very few account of their suffering remains. So the, the, the sufferings have all disappeared. I mean, there's hardly any writings about their pain and suffering. So that's how the interest really 
went on and, and, and it has, it's, 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 it's remained. Now we're going to talk <coughs> about um, the first Gurkha officer in the British Army or received his commission during the First World War. Now I'm going to try and pronounce his name and then I'm going to, probably going to get this completely wrong, but um, he's a gentleman known as Rana Jodra Jung Bahadur. I don't know whether that's the correct pronunciation. Yeah. Okay, it's, it's Rana Joda Jung Bahadur. Bahadur. And what, 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 what would you call him um, for short? Uh, Joda. Let's let's keep the, let's let's keep it simple. Let's just refer to him as Joda. I think that's well, simple. Joda. Right. Well, today we're going to talk about Rana Jodhra Jung Bahadur, who's the first Gurkha officer in the British Army who was commissioned during the First World War. The first um, Gurkha officer who was commissioned to the British Army. And obviously, my pronunciation could be well off, as I am not familiar um, with this gentleman. Not, so this not a problem at all. So this is all new to me, and you know this is this is the wonderful thing about doing things like this. We learn things every day. So exactly. before we get into his life and service in the British Army, could you tell us about um, Gurkha service in the colonial British Army or the British Indian Army as it became in 1903, and the various different military forces which existed in Imperial in India before the Great War? Okay, before the Great War, you, uh, we had the the regular British Indian Army. Then you had also something called the Imperial Service Troops. So these were uh, these were soldiers who were uh, who were there for imperial defense provided by the princely states. In addition, you also had the the, the armies of the princely states. Now I'm just going to uh, to quickly go through the various uh, uh, the various overview of the Gurkha service. It might be a little long, so please bear with me because uh, it, it, I just I just wanted to make things a little clear here. So as we all know, the Gurkhas were first recruited in the aftermath of the Anglo-Gurkha War of 1814-16 during the time of the British East India Company. Now there were some deserters from the Nepalese army who joined the army of the company during the course of this war. And in some ways, these few men were the nucleus of the Gurkha troops that has served the British crown for over two centuries now. Now before the British crown took over the administration of India, from the British East India Company through the Government of India Act of 1858, Gurkhas served as troops under contract to the East India Company. Now they served in the Pindari War of 1817, in Bharatpur in 1826, and even the First and Second Anglo Sikh Wars in 1846 and 1848. Now during the First War of, of uh, the First War of Indian Independence of 1857, which is also known as the Sepoy Mutiny by some, Gurkhas fought on the British side and became a part of the British Indian Army on its formation. Now, the Gurkha battalions were organized on a permanent and regimental basis only in 1861. Up to the end of the 18, 1870s, there were about five Gurkha regiments, each having a single battalion totaling about 5,000 men. Now, besides this, there were also a large number of Gurkhas who were serving in the uh, the, 40, the 42nd and 44th Native Infantry Regiments, which were later designated as the 8th and 10th Gurkha Rifles Battalion. And uh, more than 80% of the of the four Assam Police Battalions to which my uh, great-grandfather belonged, and also two battalions of the Burma Police comprised of Gurkhas. And uh, now uh, between 1901 uh, uh, and 1906, the Gurkha regiments were numbered from the 1st to the 10th and redesignated as the Gurkha Rifles. Now, this is very important because before this, you had just about five and even the 44th and 42nd Native Infantry, even though they were majority Gurkhas, were not numerically numbered from 1 to 10. Now, during the period from 1901 to 1906, they were renumbered, and that is how they got their present designation. Now, in this time, the Brigade of Gurkhas, as the, as the regiments came to be collectively known, was expanded to 20 battalions, 
within the 10 regiments. And I think just before the start of the First World War, the, 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 the number of Gurkha men in these 20 battalions, I think, uh, was about 55,000 men. And also from the end of the eight, from from the end of 1857 until the start of the first uh, the first world war, the, the Gurkha regiment saw active service, whether it was in Burma, Afghanistan, the northeast frontier, the northwest frontiers of India, uh, Malta, which was the Russo-Turkish War of 1877-78, Cyprus, Malaya, uh, the Boxer Rebellion of 1900 in China, and even uh, during the Young Husbands Expedition of 1905 to Tibet. Now, this was just, uh, they were all a part of the, the, the regular Indian army. Now, I'm coming to the, the imperial service troops. Now, the princely states were all quite rich in resources as well as fighting men. And the British felt that they could be used to support the British Indian army without becoming a threat. Now, with this in mind, the British launched the imperial service troop scheme of 1885, which created a reserve force from various princely states, this reserve force of approximately about 20,000 soldiers were recruited from the armies of the native states. The British Army, the British Indian Army provided them training and equipment while the princely states paid for it and provided the men. Now, these were commanded by Indian officers, unlike at the British Indian Army, where all the, uh, the, 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 the companies, the regiments, was all officered by uh, British officers. Now, the Imperial Service troops had Indian officers who took care, I mean, who commanded the men. So the Imperial Service troops included the infantry, the cavalry, artillery, sappers, and as well as even transport battalions. Now, after the end of the second, uh, I'm sorry, after the end of the First World War in, in 1918, this Imperial Service troop was um, redesignated as something called the Indian State Forces Scheme of 1920. Uh, and uh, uh, here, among the princely states, the Maharaj of Jammu, of Jammu in Kashmir, he maintained a larger number of state forces larger than any other ruler of an Indian state under, under the British Raj. These forces were organized into the Jammu and Kashmir brigades. And if I'm not mistaken, they continued till, the, in, uh, till India's independence in 1947. And I think they were the only uh, troops of a princely state to be integrated into the Indian army. Now, apart from this, as I said, you also had the, 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 the private armies of the princely states and uh, uh, not much of Gurkhas served in, in, in there, but there were there were a large number of Gurkhas who served in the Imperial State Forces of the Maharaja of Jammu and Kashmir, which was maintained by the Maharaja of Jammu and Kashmir. And these men also went to the First World War, not from the, the, the regular British Indian Army, but from the Imperial Service troops under serving under the Maharaja of Jammu and Kashmir. All right, turning to the main subject of today's uh, podcast, um, tell us about Rana Jodra Jung Balhador's family background, birth and early life and education. Now, I understand he, he's actually, his name can be shortened to Rana Jodra, so we'll use that to uh, save me any embarrassment from massacring his name exactly. again. No problem. I mean, even, I, even I'm, I'm, I'm bad with, with names for the first time, so you're no exception. Don't feel bad about it. We all do that. <laughs> so tell us about his early life and um, where he came from. Uh, Rana Joda Jang Bahadur was one of the several grandsons of Sir Jang Bahadur Rana, who founded the Rana dynasty in Nepal. Now, the Rana dynasty was a system of hereditary prime ministership in Nepal, which, uh, which, uh, which uh, uh, Sir Jang Bahadur established in, I think, 1847, and it went on till 1951. So it, it, it's very interesting because I think a lot, of, uh, uh, a lot of our listeners would not be aware that even though Nepal was a monarchy, 
I mean, and then you had a double tired monarchy. You had the the the, the king, and you had the prime minister, who, uh, and the prime ministership was hereditary. So uh, it, it's it's very interesting. So uh, Joda Jung Bahadur's father was Padma Jung Bahadur Rana, one of the thirteen sons of Sir Jung Bahadur Rana, the founder of the Rana dynasty. Now Joda Rana Joda himself was. In, it, it's very interesting. He was one of the fourteen sons of Padma Jung Bahadur Rana. They had a lot of. I mean, most of the, these Ranas had about six, seven wives, and they ended up having a lot of kids. You know. So uh, I think Rana uh, Rana Joda's father was educated to some extent, and. Because he wrote a book on the life of his father, the, the founder of the dynasty, uh, called the life of Maharaja Jung Bahadur, and uh, Joda's father, which uh, Joda's grandfather, which, uh, the, I mean um, Sir Jung Bahadur, who founded the dynasty, was the first Nepalese royal to take an extensive tour of Europe. Queen Victoria received him in London in 1850, and I think Prince Napoleon III also received him in Paris in in, in 1851. and uh, rana joda's father himself attended the first imperial darbar in 1877 in delhi to celebrate the coronation of queen victoria as the empress of india joda's father fled to india in 1888 in 1885 following an unsuccessful palace coup in kathmandu now around that time some of the nephews of sir, sir john bahadur wanted to to take over the system of hereditary prime ministership so they went on a on a murder spree and killed the many uncles of jodha so jodha's father he he maybe he feared for his life and fled with his family to india and i think he was given refuge in 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 india in he settled in alhabad it was in alhabad that jodha was born in 1890 now jodha had i think his early education in one of the four chief school which was established to impart the british system of education to the sons and members of the princely states and the aristocratic families so i think he must have gained admission to the chief school by virtue of him being nepalese royalty because he was the grandson of the 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 the, the prime minister of nepal even though his they had to they had to flee to india but i think and it's very interesting because later on a lot of the nepali princes nepalese princes princesses were married into the various princely states of india so the, even even now i mean the, the 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 most of the descendants of i mean today's india's princely states have some kind of connection to nepal by virtue of being their uh, by virtue of their great grandmothers or great great grandmothers being of nepali blood you know? so how did rana jorda enter the military service of the british now uh, before uh, i i i go into how jorda entered the military service of british i think i must bring into the picture a defunct system called the imperial cadet corps icc which was an exclusive preserve based in dehradun and Mur- and meerut which was established by lord curzon who was a viceroy in 1902 the icc was a limited and deliberate experiment by the british raj to appease their indian subjects particularly the rulers of the princely states who had military expectations of their wards or relatives being commissioned as officers in the regular british indian army also known as the majesty's army so the icc only admitted young men from aristocratic families of the princely states and then provided them military training for about 3 uh, years and then they were they were given a nominal form of commission which was not exactly a king's commission I, i don't know because there's a lot of debate 
in 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 some uh, with with some I, I had with some military scholars because uh, they didn't want to say that Rana Joda was one of the first king's own commissioned Indian officer, but I but the fact remains that he was commissioned into a a body called His Majesty His Majesty's Native Indian Land Forces. Now, even though the corps was a failure, the Imperial Cadet Corps in some ways paved the way for the establishment of the Prince of Wales Royal Indian Military College in 1922, which today is the Rush to Indian Military College, and the Indian Military Academy in 1932. Now, these two institutions were pioneers in the slow but gradual Indianization process of the, of the army during the British rule. Now, one fact which pointed to the failure of the ICC was that of the 68 graduates that the Indian that the uh, that the that the Imperial Cadet Corps produced, only 11 were granted commission into the native Indian land forces. I think in 1910, Jodha gained admission into the Imperial Cadet Corps, and after three years in 1913, he was given, as I said, a peculiar form of officer's commission as a second lieutenant into a nominal body, which I was which I just talked about, called. Uh, His Majesty's Native Indian Land Forces, which in some ways was, uh, as, as, I, as I talked earlier, the Imperial State Troop Scheme. Now, officers in the Native Indian Land Forces, even though they received army rank and pay, but they did not have the power of command over Indian troops, I mean, over, over, over combat troops. They were usually uh, had appointments in their home state or were in non-combat roles. Now, that all changed when... Uh, when officers from the native indian land forces were sent uh, i mean um, were uh, officered different regiment uh, different imperial service troops in the war and then when they proved their uh, bravery later on they were given uh, the regular commission now now coming back to jodha he had his initial training with the third gurkha rifles and then the first king george's own sappers and miners And in February 1914, he was appointed as a commandant of the Terry Garwal State Sappers, which was an Imperial Service troop. Now, Terry Garwal was a princely state, uh, was a princely state which today is uh, is in the state of uh, the northern state of Uttarakhand, very close to Himachal Pradesh, uh, in, in very close to the the the, the, uh, the, the Himalayas. Let's say that is how he entered the the, the British. Uh, the, the the service of of the British. When he entered, he did not enter the regular Indian Army. He entered as an officer in the Imperial Service Troop, or rather the Native Indian Land Forces. Now, he ends up on the Western Front during the Great War. Can you tell us how he got there and about what he did? At the outbreak of the First World War in 1914, we all know that India was dragged into the war very unwillingly. But it's very interesting because Indian rulers of their own volition offered a lot of their troops for war service. Now, as the war progressed on the Western Front in France and Belgium, the British forces and especially the Indian Expeditionary Force A, which consisted of cavalry, infantry and Imperial service troops, suffered devastating losses. Now, reinforcement drafts were urgently required. One such reinforcement draft was a contingent of 108 men of Terry Garwal State Sappers, which was commanded by the young Lieutenant Rana Joda, which was sent to bolster the 39 Garwal rifles who had suffered heavy casualties on the front line. Now, they reached France in March of 1915, traveling via Egypt. So it was in the Battle of Luz 
I think I got the pronunciation right because as you were struggling with Rana or Joda, I am also struggling with these words, you know. So first in the action at Pietre, not far from Neuville-Chapelle on September 25th, 1915. And second at La Bessé on October 13th, 1915, that the bravery of uh, Rana Joda was noticed. Now, during both these instances, he was mentioned in dispatches. So, in fact, he was mentioned in dispatches twice. Now, subsequently, Joda was awarded the military cross in November 1915, when he was just a 25-year-old officer. Now, uh, on October 12, 1915, I think, when uh, he was on action at La Bessé, not very far from Nouvelle-Chapelle, he was hit by a rifle bullet in the arm, but had luckily missed his bone. So he got to the unit doctor to bind the wound and was ready for action the next day. However, whilst heavy fighting the next day, a bomb explosion wounded him on the neck and he lost consciousness. And I think it, it was this instance which, uh, which got him the award of the, the, the military cross. And when he was recuperating in a hospital, there is, uh, I, I found out that a reporter had chance to interview him and was asking him about the, the because the Gurkhas were known for their fear concrete, you know. So this reporter, when he was, uh, when Rana Joda was recuperating in a London hospital, now he, this reporter went to him and he was very interested because there was someone of Nepalese royal blood fighting as an officer. So maybe he heard about that and wanted to interview him. So he went to this and, uh, and, and, said, and asked Joda. So he said, did you not get to use the kukri then? The, the, the reporter asked. So to this Joda said, we do not get the chance of using them very often. When they get near, the Germans hold up their hands. They've heard about our kukris. So they just, they, 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 they get terrified. So this was just a small uh, a newspaper report, which I, find, which I found out was filed by, by a reporter. And it, I found this in an archive, in an online archive from a newspaper from a New Zealand newspaper called, I think, The Herald, which was published in 1960-something around that. And Pratap, just for people who don't know what a cookery is, what is a cookery? The cookery is uh, is that the knife by which Gurkhas are known. It's a little curved blade about a, a, about a foot long. And it was this with this cookery that the Gurkhas had a lot of action. I mean, even they had a lot of hand-to-hand -hand combat with these knives with the, with the Germans and... and I mean, it's, 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 it's quite famous. We have this, it's a traditional curved bladed knife, which is about a foot long, and it's, it's very sharp, very sharp. Is it a traditional agricultural um, implement? Yes, I mean, uh, even, even till today, you have the cookeries used for, for ceremonial purposes in the, in the British Indian Army by the Brigade of Gurkhas, I think. It's still there. The tradition is still there. The insignia of the different uh, Gurkha uh, Gurkha rifles, whether uh, the Gurkha regiments in India or even the Brigade of Gurkhas in Great Britain uh, or even the, 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 the Nepalese army, they have these insignias of, of, of Kukris as, I mean, it, it, they use it in their insignias, whether it is the badgers, the belts or things like that, you know. Now, before, uh, before we just uh, go to the next question, I think uh, very interesting to, again, come back to, to Rana Joda because Rana Joda, as I told you, was sent to bolster the, 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 the 39 Garwal rifles who had lost a lot of men. Now, Darwan Singh Negi, the second Indian to be awarded the Victoria Cross, and another Indian recipient of the Victoria Cross in 1915, Gabar Singh Negi, 
they both, they both belong, incidentally, to the 39 Garwal Rifles. Now, it was this unit to which Joda was attached to as a young officer on the Western Front. In August 1917, Rana Joda was among a number of Indian soldiers to be granted a King's Commission. Could you tell us what the importance of this move was? When I was, uh, the Imperial Cadet Corps, as I told you, was a kind of a training ground for the men, for the young men of the princely states to be commissioned as officers because the, the, the general Indian people, the Indian uh, the Indian political leaders or even the, the rulers of the princely states had this ambition to see the Indians as officers in the, the British Indian Army. Of course, uh, through the ICC, this aspiration was met to a, a, a small extent because you had some commissions of the men, of the graduates of the ICC being uh, commissioned into the nominal body, which I, was, which I just talked about, uh, His Majesty's Native Indian Land Forces. Now, in August 1917, uh, since there was already a huge demand by the Indian political leadership for changes to be brought in towards self-government, now one of the, the, the demands of the, the Indian political leadership of that time was that Indians be commissioned as officers into the British Indian uh, Army. So in 1917, the War Cabinet deliberated on granting of King's Commission to the Indians after a lot of debate they accepted in principle the appointment of Indians to commissioned rank in His Majesty's army. Now, before they agreed, the, the, I think the members of the war, the war cabinet had a lengthy discussion whether to allow Indians to, 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 be, uh, to, to receive Indian commission because this would mean that Indian officers would, be, would command British troops. And this was almost unthinkable. But I think the war cabinet decided against all this and they said, we, it's time we granted King's Commission to the natives of India because maybe what, another thing which prompted the members of the cabinet was India's, India's uh, stellar contribution in the war, whether it was from the princely states, a different, the different regiments. I mean, the whole Indian subcontinent contributed immensely. And maybe this is why the, the, it, it could be one of the reasons why the British war cabinet decided that it's time to have Indians as King's Commissioned Officers. Now, the War Cabinet also agreed granting King's Commission seven captaincies and two lieutenancies to nine Indian officers of the native Indian land forces who had served with distinction in the Imperial Service Troop in the war immediately. Now, Rana Jodha was, was among the nine who were, who were given the King's Commission. Now, a lot, again, as I was telling you, some people refute saying that, no, he was not given, he was not a King's Commission. But the, I went through the discussion of the war cabinet on this, and specifically they refer to granting King's Commission, seven, and this is how they say, King's Commission, seven captaincies and two lieutenancies to nine Indian officers of the Native Indian, Indian, Native Indian land forces. Now, this, was, uh, this singular move put the Indianization of the officer cadre of the British Indian Army on the right track which was also one of the long-standing demands of the Indian political leadership of that time. And of course, the aspiration of maybe thousands of Indians who wanted to join the army and climb through the ranks because you had the system of, uh, uh, of officers who were called the, the, the Viceroy Commissioned Indian Officer, or VCIO. You, you made it to the VCIO only towards the, the fag end of your career. And it, would, and it was just not the kind of, it, it didn't have the same kind of aura 
as the king's commissioned officer. You know, so 1917 was a watershed moment in the in in the military history of India, I think, because that was the time when the British said, yes, from now on, we will allow Indians to be commissioned as officers by granting them king's commission. And subsequently, the the war cabinet, I think, decided that 10 places would be reserved for every year at Sandhurst for Indians so that they could be commissioned in the, into the army. What did Rana um, Jorda do for the rest of the war um, once he received his commission? Uh, once he received his commission, I think he, the, the, the war was, uh, was far from over. So after his, uh, because he was wounded and he was recuperating, and I think in 1916, he joined back and he, thereafter he was attached to the third Brahmins and he served in Mesopotamia for a second circuit, I think from September 1917 to October 1918. Now, again, it's very interesting here. For his service in Mesopotamia, he was a, made a member of the British Empire Military Division. So he had a decoration, MBE as well, way back in, uh, in, 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 in 1918. And perhaps he was the first Gurkha ever to be given this, this, uh, this distinction. Uh, this, uh, being made a member of the British Empire the Military Division. Before him, I think, no one ever made it this far because uh, the majority of, I mean, all Gurkhas during the First World War, all soldiers and even the officers were what you call the, the, the Viceroy, commissioned Indian officer or the VCIOs as, as they were called. Now, he was also appointed as an honorary aide-de-camp to, 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 to the Viceroy, Lord Hemsford from 1916 to 1921, I think. So he did serve, um, I mean, if we look at his service from uh, of the First World War, he served in 1915 in, in France and Belgium, then in 1917 and 18 in Mesopotamia. And so he had quite a lengthy service. I, I mean, I, I, I don't say lengthy, but it's interesting because he had the, the, the Mesopotamia campaign as well as the Western Front. He served both the the, the theatres of war there. And what did he do after the war? After the First World War, India uh, India was also fighting the Afghan War. The, the, the Waziristan campaign was still going on. So in 1919, Jodha served in the Afghan War. And later in the Waziristan campaign of 1919 to 1920. And I think he served there till 1924. Thereafter, he had a post. He, he was posted with a number of the Indian state forces, such as the, such as the 123rd, Sikhs, the 12th Bombay Pioneers and Madras, Madras Pioneers and retired as a major from the Indian Army in 1933. Now, after his retirement, he served as a commandant of the 1st Mysore Infantry from 1933 to 1936. And in 1936, he was appointed as commandant of the Tripura State Forces. Now, Tripura was a princely state, I mean, uh, in British India in the Northeast. And in 1940, he was promoted to a colonel and made the commander-in-chief of the Tripura State Forces. And uh, some of his, some of the sons of Rana Jodha, when uh, they, they, they took part in the Second World War from the Tripura State Forces, he had some of his nephews also serve as, uh, as officers, as soldiers in the, in the, in the, in the British Indian Army during the Second World War. Is Rana Jorda still seen as an important figure uh, amongst many Gurkhas serving in armed forces around the world, for instance, the United Kingdom Armed Forces or the Indian uh, Armed Forces? Uh, sadly and unfortunately, a lot of serving Gurkhas have, have not heard about him. And I think my article in 2014 on Rana Jodha was the first 
comprehensive article on him and I, I did a lot of research and I got into I, I got in touch through some people who had uh, written something about him in some military journals and even when I visited San when I visited uh, Sandhurst in uh, last year as a, yeah, and I met some of the the, the serving Gurkhas there and I, and I asked them do you know about Rana Chodhan they they didn't know about him so it's very important that serving Gurkhas whether it is in in the Indian Army the British Army the uh, or Singapore or Brunei I mean it's important that they know about this figure who was an equal to a European who was no less than a European who commanded a unit in the Western Front, was mentioned in dispatches twice, what, uh, was awarded the military cross, was uh, decorated with the member of the British Empire, the military division, and also commanded the, 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 the Indian state, uh, a number of the Indian state forces after the First World War. Now, uh, despite being such a decorated and accomplished officer, I mean, sometimes I, out of sure interest, I think, why was he not given more important appointments or more uh, appointments of greater responsibility in the regular Indian Army during the First War period? One of the reasons, I think, would be that because he didn't, uh, he didn't belong to the Sanhurst trained officer because his, his commission was much, much earlier. He, he, he graduated from the Imperial Cadet Corps in 1913 and just before the start of the First World War was commissioned as an, an officer in, in the native Indian land forces. Now, this could be one of the reasons. Uh, and by his retirement in 1933, he had already served for about 20 years and maybe he was also due for retirement from, uh, from the normal course of, uh, of service, you know. And finally, Pratap, where can people learn more about Rana Jorda? Uh, as I said, there's not much uh, literature available on him, a little bit of Wikipedia entries. And my article on him is there on the web, I think. It's, it's, it's called A First Among the Gurkhas. It's not very comprehensive, but I made an attempt to tell his story because no one had told his story. He was almost unknown. And I thought that uh, especially Gurkhas and others as well, who's, who, who, who are very interested in the, in, in, in the Gurkha participation must know about this Gurkha officer. And I think that's the little bit, the little bit, the little bit of information on him that's available. Pratap, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time...